have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to uh, 1 Kings 17. If you're like me, my Bible's kind of, wherever we study, you know, your Bible starts automatically opening. You have that experience, starts opening there. So 1 Kings 17 is where we are, and uh, I have uh, at the top of your page uh, a, a review of chapter 17, all of 17 covers the three years of the drought that, and it begins in 17.1 where Elijah comes to King Ahab, the winner of the biggest sinner contest, and says, it ain't going to rain no more, no more. It ain't going to rain no more until I say so. But the problem is, even God's faithful remnant has to survive in the midst of God's judgment. So how does God provide for his loyal remnant, uh, embodied in the person of Elijah. And that's what chapter 17 is about. And it's in three stories. It begins at the brook Cherith, where the Lord sends, the word of the Lord comes and sends him uh, to hide for protection from King Ahab. And he commissions the ravens to feed him bread and meat. Was I don't know, Mar, uh, Brian, if it was uh, barbecue or not, but it was bread and meat morning and evening, right? Day by day. But then the brook dries up and the word of the Lord comes again and says, now I've not only, I've not commissioned a raven, but I've commissioned a Gentile widow, a Baal worshiper living in Jezebel country. And she is going to provide for you. And, and, uh, we don't know if Elijah said, you gotta be kidding me. All we know is he went up and he went and he is in Jezebel country over on the coast of Phoenicia. And they too are at the point of death, just as he was about to starve. And they are at the point of death. And yet God provides through that widow her handful of flour, her little bit of oil. And every day, every day, God provides just enough for that day. And then we come to the third story, and that is in verses 17 through 24. And now the threat of death is no longer a threat, it's a reality. And that kind of changes everything. And it changes it for us too. Because most of all of us have lived long enough in this room to know that death comes. And it comes unexpected, and even when you know someone's dying... And even sometimes it's a blessing because their suffering ends. It's still death, and you have to deal with it. And so that's what we're going to see today. So what lessons, let me just review a little bit, what lessons have we learned from these three stories? Well, let's look. The first lesson by the Brook Cherith, we are reminded that the Lord's provision is providential, meaning out of His compassion, He cares for the his own children, but he also cares even for his enemies and even cares for his creation. He cares for them day by day. Day by day, the ravens who God fed would come and feed uh, Elijah. And we kind of learn as you read this chapter, you can't pass on what you don't first possess. Elijah learned to rely on God so that he could send, so that the Lord could send him to the widow, the unsaved, the pagan widow, to teach her how to rely on God. 
The second lesson we learned was from the second story. The Lord's provision always has a purpose greater than meeting our personal needs. See, if, if we're not careful, when we're living in times of apostasy, which we are, we can kind of hide out in our holy huddle, ask God to provide for us, and kind of let the rest of the world go to hell in a handbasket. But that wasn't why God provided for Elijah. He provided so that he could proclaim. That's why we just prayed for an unreached group in Australia. Because we have provisions, and particularly the provision of prayer, that the unsaved don't have. And so we are asking that God's fame of His name would be proclaimed. That's what happened. But today, we're going to add a third lesson in this third story. And here's the, here's the, 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 the idea, the tension. The Lord's provision is not a prosperity gospel. The Lord's provision is not... Hey, Todd, if you can turn the air on. It's just a little warm up here. Is anybody warm? Yeah, we're warm. So, And I'll be really warm by the time we're done. Kansas City, heat last week, air conditioning this week. Who knows next week? All right, here we go. So the Lord's provision is not a prosperity gospel that promises health, wealth, and your best life now. That's what I want you to learn. That's the idea of this passage. That is what the widow is about to learn. So let's read the story. Uh, let's look at, begin in verse 17, or let's begin in verse 16. So let's follow the story. Chapter 17, begin in verse 16. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elisha. So there's this providential daily provision that was promised until the day it would begin to rain. So that's, that's, that's been promised. Now it came to about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that was there that there was no breath left in him. He died. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? In other words, what did I do to deserve this? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. She blames the man of God who had brought provision to her house. Okay, And he said to her, Give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. He called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he does this strange thing, at least to us. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times. And he called to the Lord and said, I think as he's doing this, he's, he's, he's pleading, Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. And that wasn't just like a resuscitation of CPR. That was, he was dead, and now he's alive. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room 
into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Wow, what a story. Let's take a look at it. First of all, notice, now it came about. What came about? What is the tension in the story? What happened? Her son died. And, and it's not just any son. It's her only son. And this isn't just any woman. This is a widow. So you just saw all future hope of provision is dead. And I am convinced more than ever in looking through this, this lesson, especially today's lesson, I believe this is a little baby boy. So I quit using my fun uh, PowerPoint pictures because they have this older... I just don't think that's the case. I think we're looking at uh, arms that's being carried around. This, I, that's what I think. I can't prove it, but that's what I think. But the bottom line is, he died. But here's what I, here's what I want you to think. Now it came about. By this time in our study of 1 Kings, we should know this is God's providence. This is God's providence. Not chance, not luck, not, oh, fate. This, now it came about. This is God's providential care. And remember, God's providential care is sovereign. He gets to choose how He provides, by whom He provides, how long He provides. And so, hey, you know, in an ideal world... What should God's people do? Okay, you know, we should trust Him. We should say, God's at work. We don't like it. This is difficult. I would never want this, but God is at work. So now it came about. After these things. Well, after what things? That points us back to the, the verse 16. After what things? After Elijah had appeared and said, God has, has uh, commissioned you, basically, to provide for me, and here's what you need to do. Take your last bit of flour, take your last bit of oil, and instead of making your last meal for your starving self and your starving son, first feed me as God's representative, and as you obey in faith to God's promise, you will be sustained on a daily basis until the rain comes. So every day, this was happening. And so if you were that woman, what would you expect between that, once that started, you would expect everything to go well until it rained. And that's, that's the prosperity mindset, you see. That's how we tend to think. Don't judge others for that. Realize, well, hey, I gave my life to Christ. Things ought to be good now. Right? Or, wow, I went through a really hard time, and I asked God to deliver me, and He delivered me. Now things should be good. So, after these things. And I want to say this. Last week we saw, or the, in, in, Elijah life, we, in Elijah's life, we saw this pathway of submission. Where we receive the Word, obey the Word, abide in the Word. But also we pray the word and adore the Lord of the word. And last week we saw that the widow made it through the first three steps of that pathway. She had received the word from Elijah. She had obeyed it. And she was beginning to abide in it for daily provision. But she has not yet prayed the word. 
And I believe she has not yet adored the Lord of the Word. She's received the miracle. She has signed faith, but she doesn't have saving faith, in my opinion. In other words, I'll trust God to meet my needs, but I'm not trusting Him with my whole life, right? In spite of what would happen. Are, are, you, are you getting that? And if you're still trying to track with me, that's okay. The whole story is going to develop that. So basically... This widow, I believe, has bought into a prosperity gospel that promises health, wealth, and your best life now. She's been tested and she's been blessed, right? The previous passage. And so now the idea is, because I trusted and I've been blessed, my blessing should continue. But what happens? The unexpected tragedy of the very son she was wanting to survive dies. And so the pattern is, she was tested, she was blessed, and then greater tragedy comes. And the prosperity mindset says, no, if you have enough faith, the blessing keeps coming. But the only gospel, the true gospel... See, anytime you have to put an adjective in front of gospel, you're in trouble. Even if it's a good word. Okay, so when I say only gospel, Paul says in Galatians 1, there is only one gospel. All others are false. The true gospel says you will be tested, you can have blessing, but then you can have tragedy, and sometimes that tragedy won't change. Sometimes the baby dies and stays dead. I just heard yesterday of a, a church in our area of a worship pastor, a, a pastor on staff, who they went to give birth to their child and they came home with empty arms. See, that's reality. You can be tested, blessed, and there can be tragedy that isn't reversed. So, let me ask you, which gospel do you believe? The prosperity gospel or the... True gospel. And if you believe it, how do you live it? Do you live that out when tragedy comes? So here's the question for today's lesson. What happens when God's promised provision seems to fail? Because this is the irony of the story. Had God failed, was there still flour and oil every day? Yeah. So it seemed to fail. How? What happens? Or let me make it more personal. How do we respond... When God's provision seems to fail. So, we're going to see an unexpected death. We're going to see an effective prayer. And we're going to see a transformed testimony. So, that's the, that's the three ways this story unfolds. So let's begin. Number one, the unexpected death of the only son. The unexpected death. This is in verses 17 and 18. So, follow along in your Bibles. Verses 17 and 18. The first thing we see is the widow's catastrophe, or as a New American Standard calls it, a calamity catastrophe. Her only hope of a future provider dies unexpectedly. Like, you know, it's okay. God's going to take care of us till it rains, but my hope is in this guy to grow up and take care of me for the rest of my, my life. Here's the deal. A sickness unto death strikes the little household. The small boy's death was certainly unexpected. Perhaps it was sudden. What we do know is he was definitely dead. Because some of the wording in your translations, uh, people that don't believe the Bible and don't believe in a miraculous, uh, miracle-working God say, well, he was uh, 
he needed to be resuscitated. He didn't. He just stopped breathing. Needed a little CPR. That's you know he laid on him, did a little CPR, and then he resuscitated and came to life. But the wording here, the breath is nephish in the Hebrew. Same word in Genesis two, the breath of life. In other words, he died, and then his life came back. This is something that only God can do. Um, but the reality is. This little guy is this widow's only hope. Remember I said last week that uh, when uh, a, a woman was widowed, when a mother was widowed, her children were considered orphans. And the widow's only hope was that there would be a male son who would grow up, inherit his father's land, and provide. But the implication of this story is that she has an only son, and this son has died. That means her hope for the future has died. That means her dreams for the future are dead. And we could talk about more about what that's like, but you've you got to put yourself in that position, in that culture. She's got nobody to rely on. She's all alone. And this guy came out of nowhere, dressed like a mountain man, promising to take care of him, of her until the rain came, but who's going to take care of her after that? Well, you know, we sit now with hindsight and go, well, come on. You got the man of God there. Look at what God has done. Just trust him. Well, we have that. Are we, is that how we respond to our tragedy? Well, God will take care of us. No, we respond like this widow. And what does she do? She complains. Look at the widow's complaint. She has a threefold complaint. She blames Elijah's holiness. She blames Elijah's holiness. Look at uh, the verse 17 or 17 or uh, verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 18. So she said to Elijah, "What do I have to do with you, O man of God?" Or the ESV says, "What have you against me, O man of God?" In other words, you're the holy man, and I blame you for this. Because you got to understand Having a a man of God live in your house could be a really good thing or it could be a really bad thing because suddenly you've got God's holy represent. I mean, just think, you know, I mean, uh, anyway, this is just, it's so ironic because we have the Holy Spirit going with us every day. But, you know, just think of God's holy prophet living in your house every day, listening to everything you say, seeing what you watch seeing what you listen to, seeing how you live your life. I believe this woman is still a Baal-worshipping pagan woman. And so there's this tension of God's holiness in this man and her sinfulness. And she goes, this is all your fault. I thought you were supposed to be a blessing to me. Prosperity mindset. I thought you were supposed to just bring blessing. Now, I think you have brought death. Secondly, she blames her own sinfulness. So you got this tension. He's really holy, and she's aware that she's really sinful. And notice what she says. You have come to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. She's acting like Elijah went up and strangled this kid and took the breath out of him. So I think this is still further proof that this woman is not yet saved. She doesn't have an awareness of God's sovereignty. She doesn't have an awareness of a relationship with the Lord. It's it's Elijah. And you're the holy guy, and I'm sinful, and I think you are punishing 
me. She is preoccupied with her sinful past. And this seems to be a prosperity gospel mindset. You promised, I obeyed, now why did you do this to me and my son? Are you with me? Ultimately, what she's doing in blaming the man of God, who is she ultimately blaming? God. And so, number three, she blames the Lord due to her own lostness. Now, if you're of the, of the opinion that she's not lost, then just put weakness in there. Because I can't prove to you. It's very hard in the Old Testament to say when someone is, is truly saved and whether they're saved. And I'm, I'm not going to argue with you over that. I'm going to show you why I think she is saved. But the bottom line is, even saved people think this way, right? We tend to blame God when suffering comes. And by the way, even born-again people tend to think... God's punishing me for something. Listen, when the, when the deep sorrows come, the devil brings to mind our deep sinfulness. And we have a tendency to think, oh, I need to, I, I need to work harder. I need to measure up. I need to clean up. And maybe the, God, the Lord is disciplining us uh, to repent of sin, but she just has an awareness of, of lostness. Uh, earlier, she said to Elijah, your God instead of my God. Uh, when she, her son dies, she blames Elijah's holiness, her sinfulness, but she makes no mention, direct mention of the Lord. At the end of this story, you saw we already read, she says, now I know. So all of that leads me to think she is unsaved. She's blaming the man of God, and in doing so, she's blaming the God who sent him. So how is Elijah going to respond to this? So put yourself in the story. If you were Elijah and you had brought God's blessing to this house and God was providing in a miraculous way on a daily basis and the sun dies and you hadn't prayed that it happened and you hadn't caused it to happen and you were blamed for it, how would you respond to the widow? Think about it. Here's how Elijah responds. Number two, the effective prayer of a righteous man. The effective prayer of a righteous man. We see his response in verses 19 through 22. And here's how I want you to think about these verses. So we're looking at 19 through 22. And he basically does two things. He identifies with the widow in her sorrow as well as the death of her son, and he intercedes. So remember how I just asked you, how would you respond to someone blaming you? Here's how Elijah responds. He identifies with her in her sorrow and in the death, and he intercedes for her before the Lord. And what you see in these two things is what I've been trying to say all along about prophets. They are mediators. And so in this, he is representing God to the widow. He's saying, he's going to model, this is how God's responding to you in your sorrow. And when he intercedes, he's representing the widow to God. Are you with me? So he's, you know, I've talked about these two roles that when you're a mediator, you got two hands stretched out and you're taking, or actually this way, God's up here and God's people or unsaved people are here, and you're reaching up and you're bringing them together. And initially, he turns to her and say, and represents the Lord and says, here's how the Lord thinks of this. And then he takes the son up 
and he represents the widow before the Lord. And I think this is an important thing because if the widow's unsaved, she can't intercede. She won't intercede. She very likely could be down offering uh, sacrifices to Baal. That's why we just prayed for the aboriginal people. They're not interceding. We get to intercede. Does that make sense? We are the mediators between them and God. So that's that's the big picture. So let's break it down. First of all, Elijah represents the Lord to the widow by identifying with her. He identifies with her. Verse 19 is crucial. And it's just a bunch of verbs. One little sentence. He said to her, give me your son. And then he took, he carried, and he laid. He took, he carried, and he laid. So let's take a look at this. Elijah does three things. In representing the Lord in the depths of her sorrow, he does three things. First thing he does is like the Lord, Elijah listens to her broken heart. Elijah listens. Are you in a deep tragedy this morning? God is listening. God is listening. God is listening. How do we know Elijah is listening? Because what he doesn't do. And I don't think I have, you just have to, first of all, he doesn't reject her for blame. He doesn't take it personal. He doesn't put her in her place for blaming him. You know, I'd like to say, uh, you know, not me, you know. He doesn't reject her, right? Secondly, he doesn't try to reason with her. He doesn't try to explain, well, you got to understand God's providence and this is why he died and, and, and you know, you're still a Baal worshiper and bad things. Ha- you know, he doesn't explain it away. He doesn't try to help her understand. Third, he doesn't rebuke her. She was worthy of rebuke. You got this all wrong. I'm going to correct you. He doesn't do that. And fourth, he doesn't rationalize what has taken place. He doesn't try to make excuses for God. See, sometimes when people want to blame God, we try to get God off the hook. Well, guess what? God's big enough to take care of that. We don't always have to apologize. We don't have to apologize for God. In fact, we shouldn't. And so Elijah doesn't do what I think you and I would tend to do. If not one of those things, maybe all of those. Can I get some head shaking like your... your does that make sense? Yeah, this, that's pain, that, what I just went through is painful stuff. Because often we don't properly represent the Lord to people in tragedy. Okay, We do all the things that, that Elijah didn't do because as a prophet, he is accurately representing God to this widow. So... What does he do? Number two, like the Lord, Elijah offers to carry her burden. Oh, isn't that beautiful? He listens to her broken heart, and then he offers to carry her burden. What does he say? Instead of all these other things, what does he say? It's so beautiful. It's so powerful. Give me your son. Give me your son. Elijah is willing to identify with her and carry her burden with her and for her. But also, as, the, as representing God, he is asking her to let go of her lost hope and her dead dreams and to surrender them to the Lord. When he says, give me, who is he representing? He's saying, give that, give that dead son, give those lost hopes to the Lord. It's a burden too heavy for you to carry.
He's saying, give me your total inability to reverse this situation. Let go of it and give it to one who can deal with it. Now, I'm telling you, one of the greatest temptations and one of the greatest dangers we all have is when our most precious hopes are dashed, when our most precious dreams are dead, and we know they're dead, we keep hanging on to them. Are you with me? We cling to them. And we keep going back to, and you know you're doing this, when all you can talk is about the past hopes that have been dashed. You're always going back. Why? Because you're clinging to that which is dead. And I say to you this morning, the Lord is saying, give me those lost dreams. Are you with me? Release them. They're dead. You know they're dead. You're not going to be able to change those. Release them to me. And then number three, what will the Lord do with our tragedies and our dashed dreams, our, our dead hopes? Like the Lord, Elijah carries her burden into the most holy place. He carries the burden where we can't go, but he can go. And so Elijah carries this, this child. And what happens? Three words. He took him from her bosom. Now, the only English translation that translates that word bosom is the New American Standard. All other translations say arms, and that's valid, but it also can mean bosom. And when you trace this Hebrew word through 1 Kings, or just the English word bosom, it comes up. It's more than just taking. Listen, this is her dead baby. And she is holding that baby to her heart. She is wishing, hoping, grieving, lamenting that she cannot nurture this dead one back to life. And so, he says, give me your son, and she's too weak to let go. And isn't it great that in the Lord in His grace, he, tooks, he takes the baby, the dead hope, from her bosom into his own. I love what Chuck Swindoll, he captures it. As the widow had cradled her boy in her arms, so now Elijah cradled her heart in his. That's what the Lord does. He identifies and enters in to your pain, and he takes that which has broken your heart into his. And he carries him up to his own room. Twice it says in this passage, an upper room. And this is where Elijah stayed. This is where Elijah lived. This is where Elijah prayed. This is where Elijah fellowshiped with God. And it emphasizes going up. And I think it's a picture that when you give your broken dreams to the Lord, he takes them into the most holy place. And, of course, now we live after Jesus Christ, right? And He's seated at the right hand. And when we pray in Jesus' name, He takes our burdens into the most holy place. Amen? Is that good news? I mean, this is like, you know, wow, this is cool. And then He lays him on the bed. And you say, well, first of all, why is He going up to that room? I think because what's going on down there is pagan worship. And He's wanting it to be clear, look... 
You've got to know the one true living God who, who is, lives in heaven and, is, and rules over the earth. Okay? Upper room. And then he lays him on his bed. Now, you listen, you can't get any more intimate than that. Now, we don't know exactly why these things... The Bible tells us it's going on, and the Bible emphasizes that it's important. But it doesn't tell us why. So I don't want to stray too far and get really, you know, creative and make up my own meanings. But he is taking this... First, let me just say this. Elijah, this holy man of God, is so identifying with this, this, this death that he's willing to touch an unclean body. And, and risk being unclean. And he's willing to take death into his own personal space, and he's willing to lay death on his own bed. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not too thrilled about you know I'm, I'm not really happy my dog sleeps in our bed. Okay? And I won't go any further with that. But I'm just telling you, a dead body in my bed... Now, why is he doing that? Part of the reason, I think... Now, I can't, you know... Is that this boy isn't... He's dead, but he's, he, he's going to be alive. He's taking a nap. He's going, to be, he's going to end up taking a little nap. So he lays him in his own bed. That's all Elijah identifying. God, representing God to this widow. Now he's going to switch. He's up in his upper room. He's going to now represent the widow before the Lord by intercession. By interceding. Elijah represents the widow to the Lord by interceding. And he does three things. Okay, how does he do this? Look at verse 20. First of all, he laments for the grieving widow before the Lord. He laments for the grieving widow. Basically, he takes her brokenness, her heartbreak, and brings it before the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? What should we be doing for people who are suffering? What should we be doing for the lost people around us? We ought to be bringing their brokenness before the Lord. Can I get an amen? amen. Hey, the reason we don't hand these out is because we're not doing this. The reason we don't hand this out is because we're not doing this. And the reason we're not interceding is because we're not identifying. Are you with me? And I, you know, that's, you know, I'm preaching to myself. And so he laments. He says, he called to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, my God. Notice, not her God, my God. He's the one that's got the right relationship. And he says, Oh Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity or catastrophe to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? The widow said, you caused my son to die. He has a right relationship with God and knows God is sovereign. And he doesn't know what God's doing because God hasn't been consulting with him on it. So he's not questioning, why did you do it? He's just saying, he's doing what good praying should be done. What is your will? Is your will for this boy to stay dead. It's obviously, it's your will for him to be dead now, but is it your will for him to stay dead? That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. He's lamenting. And he's also implying by that prayer, now Lord, your reputation downstairs is being questioned. You know, and so he's praying not to, for his desire, 
to be met. He's praying for God's desire to be met, for God to be glorified. And that's what good praying does. Secondly, he identifies with the widow's loss before the Lord. So he he identified by representing God to the widow. Now, before God, he's saying, look, as he, here's why I think he lays. No one knows, okay? No one knows. Here's why I think he stretches out. He's basically saying, God, I fully identify. I'm willing to become unclean like he is unclean. I'm willing to give my life for his life. I'm willing to take on his death, and I'm willing to impart my life, if that would be your will, I'm fully identified. Does that sound like someone else we know? Huh? Don't you wish this was Easter? This sounds like Easter. No, it's going to be good. We're going to... We're going to go to Mount Carmel on Easter. But this is the Easter message. He is, he is, as a prophet, he is representing what God is truly going to do. God is going to become one of us, and he's going to die as our substitute, and he's going to raise, and then he's going to give us life. And basically, Elijah is saying, look, I fully identify with this loss, and I fully am willing to risk my own life for his. Three. But he knows he can't do anything about it. He knows only God can. So number three, he pleads with the Lord to give life back to the dead boy. He pleads with the Lord, and here's the prayer. And don't think... So if someone dies in your home, don't think stretching out on him three times is going to raise him from the dead. It wasn't the stretching. It was the praying. It was this prayer. Oh, Lord, my God. I pray you let this child's life return to him. And so what he's doing is just saying, your will be done. You're the life giver, not me. I identify, I lament, I intercede, but at the end of the day, you are the living God, and you can give, You have taken life, and you can give it back. Amen? Amen. And so he pleads. And then the Lord hears Elijah's powerful prayer and gives life back. So here's the beauty of it. He identifies, he intercedes, but what does the Lord do? The Lord intervenes. Wow! Just like Easter, he intervenes. The Lord intervenes. Verse 22, the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. It wasn't, he didn't see the stretching. It wasn't the stretching. It wasn't the identifying. It was the interceding. And the life of the child returned to him and he revived. And revived is a little weak. I mean, you know, he came back to life. Okay. He wasn't, you know, resuscitated. Now, I wish we had time to talk about why were his prayers answered, but you can go to James 5, 16, and 17. His prayers were answered because he was in right relationship with God, a righteous man, and he prayed passionately. Oh, I mean, he's crying, as he, I believe, as he's stretching. He's saying, oh, Lord, I wish I could do this, but I can't. But you can, if it be your will. And then third, we know from Hebrews 11... By faith, widows received their sons back to life. He's praying in faith in what God can do, not what can he can do. So what's the result of this? 
What's changed? What happens now? Number three, the transformed testimony of a trusting widow. The transformed testimony of a trusting widow. And in this, the result is two things. The widow received a gift of grace and she had the right response. A response of what? How should we respond to grace? Faith. And here is where, in my opinion, she exercises saving faith. She's no longer trusting in a little flour and a little oil. She's no longer trusting in the miracle, but the miracle worker, right? She's saying, hey, you can take my son, you can give me my son, you can take the flour, you can take the oil. What I need is you. What I need is you. What you need is him in your tragedy. Isn't this good? So here's what happens. Look at verses 23 and 24. Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper room into the house, gave him to his mother, and Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Man, is that Bible state. Listen, beloved, get into your Bibles. Observe. It's the exact opposite of what he did previously. God totally reverses the situation. A gift of grace. The Lord reverses tragedy from death to life. And I gave you a little chart. Kim doesn't like my chart. She doesn't. She has told me I'm, I, they don't benefit me. Kim, they benefit me. Okay, so I do them for me, and then for anybody else that likes charts. Okay, is there anyone? Okay, Jim. Okay, okay. There's a few. So I put them out there because I'm going to do them anyway, and so I figure I might as well put them in. And then maybe someday Kim will come along and benefit from my charts. But if you'll look at that, he, here's what he does. Give me your son, takes him, brings him up, lays him down. The boy comes to life. The text doesn't say this, but I think he picked him up from the bed. He took him down. He put him in his mother's arms. And he said, see, your son is alive. Total reversal. And she didn't deserve it. The boy didn't deserve it. It was a gift of grace. Beautiful, right? So how does the widow respond? By God's grace, she responds in faith. A response of faith. The Lord redeems a testimony from unbelief to belief. This woman goes from blaming to praising. Okay? She goes from unbelief to belief. Then the woman said to Elijah... Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The Lord's messenger and his message are vindicated. And in two weeks or three, whatever it is, when Easter comes, the resurrection is going to vindicate the Messiah and his message. So this is Old Testament gospel. Okay? And, and I think I have in your notes, she learned to believe in miracles, but who do you trust? You trust in Jesus. Believe in miracles, but trust in Jesus. And I think she went from that response. And then two, the Lord Himself is vindicated as the one true God who not only sustains life, but raises the dead. Where is this resurrection to life taking place? In Jezebel country. In Baal-worshipping country. And who was Baal? Baal was the god of fertility. And remember, Baal was the god 
who was not much of a god because other gods could kill him and he would stay dead. And he still wasn't much of a god because another god would raise him to life. And the god that killed wasn't the same as the god to life. All these false gods. And God, the true God, the Yahweh, has brought his prophet into Baal country to say, you know what? I'm God anywhere. And I'm God of every people group. And I'm the God who grants life and takes life. I'm the God that gives rain or prevents rain. I'm the living God of Israel. And the good news is, I'm a promise keeper. And I have a heart for my enemies. I have a heart for the unreached living in darkness. I have a heart for widows who feel abandoned and alone. I have a heart for orphans who daddy isn't there, or if he's there, he's an absent dad. I have a heart for those things. And if you will come to me in faith, I can reverse your tragedy, not necessarily in this life. I'm not a prosperity gospel, but in the life to come. Because no matter what you face, cancer, death, separation, whatever it is, whatever you're struggling with right now, in the life to come, it's going to be reversed. But you've got to place your faith in Him before that time comes. And I know many of you believe that in your head, but when tragedy comes, are you more like the widow or are you more like Elijah? Are you like the widow Blaming others, complaining. It's okay to lament. But are you like Elijah where you bring those brokenheartedness, those dead hopes to the Lord and you release them to the Lord? And if you're not doing that for yourself, we're not going to do it for the lost. If we're not doing this for ourselves, we're not. And the danger, though, is if you're doing it for yourself to then become selfish and not do it for the loss. So, look at the bottom of your notes. What does the Lord's unlikely prosperity look like? Because this was a very rich woman, would you say not? The Lord had made her very rich, but it was an unlikely prosperity, right? The Lord does not promise you your best life now, but His best life in the kingdom to come. The Lord's providential provision of the oil in the and the, and the flower meant to promote faith in the only gospel that promises eternal life in spite of circumstances. See, God giving us this beautiful day is a reminder to put my hope in me when the days are cloudy and the storms come. Right? It's, it, it, it's to point us to faith in the one who has control of the weather and of the tragedies of our lives and who can take the worst of tragedies and bring glory to himself and call others to faith in him. So let me ask you, are you trusting in the Lord in spite of unexpected tragedy for his best life? That is to come, but you know what the good thing is? He gives us the Holy Spirit, and He gives us a little bit of that best life now. 
Not like the prosperity guys. But he gives a little bit through the Holy Spirit of the best life to come can be yours now, even in the midst of tragedy. And that's when the world takes notice. You had a miscarriage? How are you making it? Your son died? Your marriage failed? You're suffering job loss? How are you making it? Well, I've got a Savior who takes me and my problems into the throne room of heaven and who has imparted to me His Holy Spirit so that I can persevere because I know His kingdom is coming and His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, I know I've preached beyond and taught beyond my ability. And I'm like that widow. I, I've got to let go of my inability and trust in your ability. And I don't know where everybody is, but I know some are going through deep waters. Some are going through tragedies. Some are about to face things that we don't even know. May even come this afternoon. We don't know. But we know you will be with us. Lord, may we identify with the hurting people around us who don't know you. May we intercede for them. And Lord God, may we invite them to hear the good news that your son laid down his life so that he could rise from the dead to impart his life to us who are dying and separated from you. Lord, this is good news. May we receive it if we haven't received it into our own hearts. And may we proclaim it to those sitting in darkness. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Good stuff. Good stuff from Elijah.